This morning, I want to talk, I want to start my sermon off talking about George Mueller. Now, George Mueller was a native German. He was born September 27, 1805, and lived almost the entire 19th century. He died March 10th, 1898, at the age of 92. That's a long life. He spent most of his life in England and pastored the same church for over 66 years. We ought to praise God for that, to pastor a church for 66 years. You know, church folks crazy, and if you can last 66 years, you got the anointing on your life. Amen, amen. And when I say crazy, I'm including myself in it too. We pastors crazy too, amen. Now, although George Mueller had a significant accomplishment, the one he was known for around the world in his own lifetime and still today was the orphan ministry. He built five large orphan houses and cared for 10,000 orphans in his life. When he started in 1834, there were accommodations for 36,000 orphans in all of England, and twice that many children under eight were in prison. One of the greatest effects of, Mueller, uh, of Mueller's ministry was to inspire others so that 50 years after Mr. Mueller began his work, at least 100,000 orphans were cared for in England alone. He did all of this while simultaneously preaching three times a week from 1830 to 1898. He preached at least 10,000 times. And when he turned 70, he fulfilled a lifelong dream of missionary work for, for the next 17 years until he was 87. He traveled to 42 countries, preaching on an average of once a day. And I'd be struggling to get in the sermon for once a week. In addressing some 3 million people. It is not until you take a peek into the diary of George Mueller where he penned his devotion prayer, where you discover what kept him running for God. In November 1844, he says, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission. Some of us can't pray a minute. Whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagement might be, 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thank God and prayed on for the other. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thank God for the second. And I prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thank God for the three. And went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. 36 years later, he wrote that the other two sons of one of Mueller's friends were still not converted. And he wrote, but I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after he began to pray, these two men were finally converted after he died. Mueller had a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which inevitably leads to what? A heart for people. 
the gospel always leads us for a heart for people. You see, church, a longing for people's salvation, a caring for the orphan, and a relentless desire for preaching the gospel is a direct result of being transformed by the gospel. I'm going to say that again. A relentless desire for preaching the gospel is a direct result of being transformed by the gospel. It is a, reject, it is a direct result of falling in love with Jesus. It is a fruit of falling in love with Jesus. Can I meet you where you're at this morning? Can we be honest? And we pull up a chair at the same table. Church, you ever wondered, what does God want me to be praying about? How about, what should a Christian think about the most? What should dominate my thought pattern? Or perhaps you ask this question. What should be the longing of my heart? This morning, Paul invites us into the secret places of his heart that we may know his answer. This morning, I want to deal with three things. How the gospel shapes our thinking, our praying, and our longing. I'm going to say that again to make sure that we're all on the same road this morning. How the gospel shapes our thinking, our praying, and our longing. We pick up our series today in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, go there. Get there quickly. It'll also be on the screen. Turn it on on your phones or whatever you got to do. You know, it really shouldn't be no excuse for nobody not to have a Bible. They'd be like, I ain't got no Bible. Why you got all the other apps on your phone then, man? Download the Bible. All right, Romans chapter 1, verses 8. Through 15. This is known as the autobiographical glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Paul. What was he thinking? What was he praying for? What was he longing for? This is known as the salutation of Romans. All of his letters, except perhaps Galatians, include this type of introduction. Now, last week we saw the, uh, the greeting in the, in the gospel uh, as we kicked off Romans last week. This week, we will dive into the mind and heart of the apostle, which provides us a model for how the gospel should impact our thinking, our praying, and our longing. Here's the word of, word of the Lord, starting at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine's. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I want to talk about thinking and how our thinking shapes our thanksgiving. I can almost guarantee you this morning, church, that whatever you are thankful for dominates what you think about. Whatever you are most thankful for dominates what you think about. Why is this? 
Well, to be thankful for something is to have a high appreciation for it. Think about it for a moment. When a man tells a woman, girl, I love you. I've been thinking about you all day. Your legs must be tired. No, I'm just like, <laughs> girl, I've been thinking about you all day. And I thank God for you as he gazed into our eyes or whatever. And the girl says, well, if you've been thinking about me all day, why haven't I heard from you? Why does she say that? Because you say that you've been thinking about me and you're thankful for me, but you have not taken time out of your day to talk to me. I just gave y'all a conversation between me and my wife. Oh, no, I was just saying. But she has checked me a couple times. And it's, it comes to a place, especially for a woman, when, when she gets to this place of maturity, when, when, when game doesn't work anymore. I don't want to hear, I, 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 I don't only want to hear you talk to talk, but I want to hear you walk to walk. I'm not only looking at what you're saying to me, I'm watching the fruit of your life. Amen? It is not enough to say that we are thankful for something. But we must live like we are thankful for the thing that we claim to be thankful for. Now, here in verse 8, we see that Paul is thankful to God for the faith of the Roman church. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The first question is, why does Paul have so much joy over the salvation of people he never met. Now, I want to remind you this morning that Paul has never encountered the people in Rome, but yet he has this heart of gratitude for their faith. In verse 1, he really expresses and, and helps us to understand why he is so thankful for the salvation of the Roman church. Last week, I talked about Paul called himself a slave to the gospel. In other words, I live and breathe for the gospel. When what you are living for is being accomplished, what do you do? You rejoice over it. If you're working hard to get abs and you finally see two of them showing up, you begin to rejoice. Amen? If, if you worked all your life to get your PhD and you finally get it, you rejoice over it. If you've been working for that man or that woman or that girlfriend you've been trying to get for a minute and you finally get them, you rejoice over that. Whatever we give our life to, when we accomplish that, when, when we grab a hold of it, we rejoice over it. Amen? Paul gave his life to the gospel. Last week... Verse 5, he gave his mission statement, the mission statement of his life. It says this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, watch this, the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul is thankful that the church in Rome is believing in Jesus. And the reason why he is so thankful it's because his entire life is shaped to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, not only does Paul want to see people believe and trust and take hold of Jesus, but I want you to watch this, this little phrase here, obedience of faith. What does that mean? Genuine, and I want you to underline this in your mind. Genuine saving faith displays itself in a transformed life. Obedience. Obedience doesn't produce faith. I want to make sure I'm clear here. Obedience does not produce faith. You don't try to come to church and then believe. That's not how it works, right? 
Faith produces obedience. And see, a lot of people get that mixed up. They think that they can gain favor with God by what they do. But how many people know the Bible says that you cannot please God without faith? All right? But at the same time, it's not enough for you to say that I believe in God and live any way you want to live. I always say this to people. The gospel doesn't say that you might change. If you encounter Jesus, you will change. Every man that be in Christ is a new creature. The old is gone. The new is here. Who am I talking to this morning? The apple tree produces apples way before. It's an apple tree before it produces apples. Why does it produce apples? Well, because it's an apple tree. So if someone says that they have faith in God and you look at the fruit of their life and you don't see no love for Jesus, you don't see no desire to be with the saints, I'm telling you right now, it's a bold-faced lie. I call it Christian game is what I call it. Jesus said you can judge a tree by its fruit. Y'all been reading y'all Bibles. Amen. So Paul's entire life is lived and shaped for the spreading in preaching of the gospel to all people. Now, understand the reversal in Paul's life. The gospel doesn't just come to save me. It comes to transform me. And so Paul, who used to be a self-sinner trying to climb the Jewish ladder, is now a man that's no longer self-sinner, but now he's self-giving. This is what he lives for, to see people believe in Jesus. So now we can see why in verse 8, he is so joyful and thankful and thinks about the faith of the people in Rome. And we ought to rejoice over people's salvation, amen? Jesus says in Luke, he says, just so I tell you, that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, God throws a party in heaven. Amen. I mean, he all stops. It is jumping in heaven every time somebody gets saved. I wish I could just take a spaceship to heaven for a moment when somebody gets saved and just, and just link up at the party with Michael the archangel and link up with Gabriel the angel and just rejoice over, over the saints that are getting saved. Amen. See, church, it is one thing to say that we love the gospel. But the evidence of truly loving the gospel is evident first in the loving of the one whom the gospel is concerning, which is Jesus. And secondly, our willingness to give our life so that others may know him. Two things that gives evidence that I believe the gospel. Number one, I fall in love with Jesus. And number two, I I live my entire life from that point on trying to get other people to believe in this Jesus that I took a hold of. Now, if you remember Michael's Jordan Hall of Fame speech, he said that he lived his entire life to bring people into the joy of basketball because he loved basketball so much. Church, we ought to love Jesus and the gospel so much that we give our entire lives trying to bring other people into the joy of the Lord. Now, I want you to watch this. I don't want this to pass you by. Now, when Paul gives thanksgiving, he doesn't give thanksgiving to the Roman church. He doesn't say, I'm so glad that y'all believe. I'm so glad that y'all found it within yourself to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He doesn't do that, and you don't want to pass this up. In fact, he actually gives vertical praise to God. Why does he do this? Paul realizes that if anyone comes to faith in Jesus, that it is ultimately a work of God. 
Salvation is ultimately a work of God. Church, we would be wise to be careful to give God all the praise if someone came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of us like to have our uh, little stickers of how many people we didn't saved, right? And we like to brag about it. Now, if you've seen the back panther, Killmonger, he had all the little bubbles on his skin of all the people he killed. All of us, we want to put bubbles on the people we didn't save. We didn't save here, here, and here. I'm sorry, that came out of nowhere. That was not right here, but I've been looking for a moment to use that movie, and there it is. But we will be careful to give God all the praise. In Romans uh, 6, 17, it says this, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. Thanks be to God, not to you, but to God. So here in verse 8, Paul is thankful because of their faith that is global. So just a quick note here. Paul is rejoicing and giving thanksgiving to God, thanksgiving to God because the saints in Rome, their faith is gone global. Now, I want to note something about faith here. Faith may start in the heart as invisible, but by the time the faith begins to work in your heart, it ought to be evident to the world that you have saving faith. So good works and loving your neighbor and so forth and so forth. So Paul is rejoicing that their faith is gone global. Those who love Jesus love the salvation of people and give their lives to the gospel mission. Nothing can make us more thankful to God than seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ and to see that faith being lived out. So church, my question to you this morning, what makes you thankful? Is it your sport team winning? Is it finding that new dress you've been longing for? Or does your church family serving the spiritual needs of Gary makes you rejoice? What about someone being free from drug addiction? What about folks being baptized? What gets your Thanksgiving going? Train your mind to think with, of kingdom values and set your heart on them. And when you see God working in your community and in your school and at your job, when you see the fruit of the gospel, you will rejoice. Now, not only is Paul thankful for the church, not only does he give God praise for them, but because Paul is such an advocate and such on mission to see people saved, not only is he giving thanksgiving, Paul is also praying for the salvation of people. Look at verses 9 through 10. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, hold up, church. Wait a minute. Did you catch the first part of the verse? Did you see that? Maybe you didn't. Paul calls God to the witness stand to attest to his faithful prayer to see the church in Rome. Paul calls God to the witness stand. Paul is like God knows that I have worn his ears and my knees out trying to come see you all. So I don't want you to miss this. Not only should the gospel shape our thankfulness, but it ought to shape our prayer life. Now, how many of us can call on God's witness to say, God knows what I pray about, and my prayers are about the Lord and about the salvation of people? Paul calls on the Lord. Now, a lot of us, if we were to 
be honest, and we were to put our prayer life on the screen, we would be embarrassed. Church, this is your conscience speaking. Lord, I know I shouldn't be praying this, but can you strike them down, please? Lord, please don't let them get the job. This is your conscience speaking, church. George, I can't, church, Lord, I can't stand her. Can you make her feet swell up? We say all kinds of things in prayer, but Paul shows us in complete transparency and openness. And he says, God is my witness that my heart is legit for you, that I pray for you, that I spend time praying for you. Paul shows us he is utterly devoted to the gospel by persistent prayer. Church, prayer is no easy task. Jesus sweated drops of blood. Epaphras in Colossians is said that he was wrestling in prayer for the church of Colossae. Church prayer is no punk. You'd be surprised how many people you say, have you prayed about it? Why you got to bring up prayer again? So many people like, I don't want to do no praying. We need to do some action. But you're only saying that because you don't know the power of talking to God and bringing your needs before him and saying, Lord, I can't do this without you. I can't pastor this church without you. I can't do this job without you. You got to understand that prayer is a powerful thing. And if Jesus and the Apostle Paul had to pray, don't you sit in here and act like you don't need the help of the Lord. And oftentimes we don't go to him in prayer because we believe in ourselves and we trust in ourselves more than we trust in God. But Paul understood that if salvation was to come, it was going to be by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul did is he got on his knees and he bowed himself. How many people know that you fight the battle strongest and is on your knees. You got to understand that you need God to do this thing. And a lot of us are worrying and out of our mind and giving up and want to quit because we haven't been praying enough. Paul is praying for them. Jesus told a similar truth about the persistence of prayer. I want you to understand something this morning, church. Is that it's not just about the content of your prayer, but about the persistence in your prayer. See, a lot of us, we go to God, we pray to him one time, and when he don't answer it, we go to plan B. Because we said, I prayed to him, and I expected him to act, and he didn't. So now I'm going to take this into my hands. But biblically speaking, God is not only concerned with the content of our prayer, but he is concerned about the persistency of our prayer. Because persistence show that I ain't going anywhere else but to you and to you alone. I don't believe that anybody else can solve it. How many people had issues? There's a couple people that know what it is to be consistent in prayer. You know, some people, you prayed for your husband, and now he's here today, but it took you years. How many people, you prayed for your wife, but it took you years. You are addicted to something, but it took you years. But as you stay faithful in prayer, God answered that prayer. Jesus tells a parable. Like uh, um, about a woman who went to a judge and the judge got so tired of her nagging him. Husbands, that don't mean you can do that, okay? All right. But the judge got so tired of the woman nagging him, the, the parable concludes like this. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray 
and not lose heart. That's the hard part about prayer is not to lose heart. So church, what gave Paul the fuel to pray, I don't want you to miss this, with such endurance is the same thing that gave George Mueller the fuel to pray longevity prayers for 50 plus years. It was the passion and the love they had for the gospel in this mission. I want to slow down because I don't want you to miss that. It's not just coming to God about your needs. If you come to God in prayer about his mission in the gospel, God will hold you up in prayer. God will fight for you if you pray according to the word of God. A lot of us don't get our prayers answered because we're praying for things just for ourselves. But Paul prayed a prayer about people being saved. And you cannot pray long prayers without the Spirit. Not only is Paul thankful for the salvation of the Romans, not only does he pray for them, but he also longs to see them. Drop down to verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, Verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other. Faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul says this, for I long to see you. Paul has never met them, doesn't know anything of them personally, yet he has prayed for them ceaselessly and desired of his heart is to see them. This is Christian brotherhood in love. He has heard so much about their faith and obedience, he realizes the challenges they face doing ministry in the imperial city, Rome. Now understand that Paul understands that they are under the government of, of, of Nero, and Nero, as I said last week, would take Christians, roll them up in wax, and burn them for his parties. So Paul understands that they are going through difficulty and hardship, and Paul is impressed that although they're going through difficult times, they're still clinging on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, I want to be in their presence so that I may be encouraged by their faith. Let me bring it home to you this morning. There's a lot of people in our congregation that is suffering and going through pain and difficulty, and as a pastor, you get to go to the hospital, and you get to go to the grieving saints, and when you look them in their eye and they tell you, oh, though he slay me, yet shall I praise him. That does something to your own spirit to see your brothers and sisters suffering and yet they're clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but to the degree you're willing to suffer for something tells me to the degree that you love that. And when I see saints suffering and clinging to Jesus, I say that there's a love and a God that goes beyond this world. There's a peace that goes beyond this world. There's a joy that goes beyond this world, and that's the joy that I want. But quite often we hear in the pulpit and we hear on church TV that coming to Jesus will lead you to a BMW. Coming to Jesus will lead you to boatloads of money, and they say that those who are suffering don't have faith. But I got to argue that this morning. You mean to tell me he lost his kids, he lost his wife, and he's still clinging to him? You tell me who got the faith. The person who's like Joe 
robe and say, though he slay me, yet shall I praise him? Or the person who's doing, everybody can praise God when things are going good, but it's hard to praise him and say that you love him and to cling to him when times are hard, when your health is failing, when things are not going your way, it's hard to praise him. And so Paul sees the church in Rome and he gets excited. He gets encouraged and he goes to his father in heaven and he says, listen, daddy, I want to go see them because you know, as an apostle, sometimes I go through hardships and struggles. And so I need to be around some saints that are loving and clinging to the cross so that I can be encouraged. But what are the three things that Paul longs for? He longs to, he, he longs to see them to be blessed by them and to be blessed, uh, I'm sorry, he, he longs to see them, to be blessed, to bless them and to be blessed by them. Now, the language he uses is impart a spiritual gift. What gift? It is a spiritual gift, specifically like knowledge or service or a more general spiritual encouragement. I think the latter, though, amongst the best spiritual graces that, that we can have as Christians is to be around like-minded believers. There's nothing more of a blessing when you're going through something than to be around your brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of us can testify to that. You ever felt like that? Like, man, I need to be around my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to be around those who believe in Jesus so that I can be encouraged. And if I can have just a moment right here, I want to pause and open up a parenthesis and have a pastoral moment with you this morning. There's nothing that I pray about more for this church than that we would have deep relationships with one another. That we would truly be a family. Because I believe some of us are tired of the religious games. We're tired of the mechanical Christianity. We're tired of coming in here and acting like I got everything together. And the place is supposed to be the very place I can open up and be vulnerable. But even when I get here, I got to act fake and phony and put on a mask and worry about people judging me. But the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from our masses because if God had to die for you, you're not as cute as you think you are. You ain't got it together as much as you think you are. Jesus outed everybody on Calvary. And he said the whole world is jacked up. And Paul is saying, I need to be around some real folks, some people who are not phony and act like they got it all together. It is my prayer that I be with them. What did they do? In Acts chapter 2, verses 42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. The gathering and the fellowships of the saints is critical to your spiritual walk. There are so many people that are so angry at the church that they walk away from it. Or there's people who say that they can have bad side Baptist kind of faith. But I came to tell you that God is so constructed and engineered Christianity in such a way that you can't survive without the body. Which is why Paul says the foot can't tell the hand, I don't need you. Or the nose can't tell the eyeball, I don't need you. You know how crazy your body will look? If your nose like, get out of here, eyeball. You know what? I can't stand you, toenail, after what you did last week. You need to be removed from the body. We don't do that, do we? And Paul is saying here that he longs to be with them. But some of the issue is that sometimes we're too busy. 
Some of the ways we strive to provide Christian fellowship here at the Gary campus is through our Bible studies, through Verge, through church events. Church, we need to intentionally, spiritually seek relationships with brothers and sisters in the body. Can I just encourage you to do that? And can we work against this independent Christian superhero mentality? Some of us need to repent of this. I do not want to see us be a church that is so divided. And I'm not saying that we have issues against one another. I'm talking about the division that we don't even seek relationship with one another. I'm encouraged by some of the women in our church that meet together regularly to encourage one another. And I mean, get up in each other's business. That's why a lot of us don't want to hang around people. I don't want nobody in my business. All right? I don't want you to know about the sin in my life. I don't want you to know about the difficulty in my life. You know, when, when, when growing up, we were told to keep the business in the house. Right? You don't want nobody to see your weaknesses, but Christianity reverses that. And we open ourselves up. And just a couple pointers to what we should be doing when we get together, uh, besides talking about ESPN and TV drama shows. Some of y'all be talking about scandal and all that other stuff. But here are some, uh, some started questions, and I think I got them on the screen. When we get together as saints, here's some questions we ought to ask each other. What has God been teaching you lately? Just what is God doing in your life? What is a key season of spiritual growth in your story? I want to know that. How is God working in your life? What is something I can pray for you about? Who has God mostly used to grow you as a Christian? What are you reading for spiritual growth? Is there anything you're struggling with that I can walk alongside you with? The Bible says we ought to bear one another burdens. How is your marriage? How is it with your singleness and contentment? How is that going? What stirred Paul's affections for Christian fellowship? The answer is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. His love for the Lord. Paul is not eager, not eager to go to Rome so he can check out the magnificent sights in the gallery of shops and gaze at the temple. Paul is driven with longing for fellowship with his brothers and sisters in Rome. There is another thing that is fueling him to get to Rome. Paul knows he has the only gospel. He has the only good news. He has something that everyone needs, and it is Jesus Christ. He knows that people are perishing and going to hell. And he has the only gospel, which is God's son, Jesus Christ. Now, how does having the only message shapes Paul's attitude? Look at verse 14. So not only is the gospel shaping his thanksgiving and his thinking, not only is it shaping his prayer life, but now it is shaping his attitude towards people. I am under obligation both to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now watch this very carefully. These words translate awkwardly to us, Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish. What are you talking about, Paul? Are you talking about people? Are you downing people? What's up? But he's not being disparaging. He is merely being inclusive with the gospel. Watch it. The word, the, the word Greek here means cultured, and barbarian means uncivilized. The word wise here is for those who have some education, maybe a degree or two. The foolish is for those who are unlearned or no education. Or if Paul was writing to us today, he may categorize it this way. 
the upper class and the lower class, the ghetto and the rich? Why list this broad category of people? Why list this contrasting category, categories that humans have made to label and to rank one another? Because we categorize one another. The first time I see you, I'm summing you up so I can put you in a category. I need to know how I need to deal with you. And so as I look at your lifestyle, I watch what you're driving, and I'm more concerned about what you're driving than what's driving you. And so we like to look on the outside, and what we need to understand is that a lot of times, people buy a lot of stuff on the outside to make up what's lacking on the inside. And so and so a lot of times, we have a lot of insecurity in the room, and a lot of people don't know it. And that's why some of of us, we are a public success, but behind closed doors, we are a private mess because people don't know what's going on in the inside. And so Paul says, I, my gospel is for the Greek, it's for the barbarian, it's for the wise, and it's for the, and, and it's for the foolish. What are you talking about here, Paul? Paul is saying that everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. It really doesn't matter how great you think you are. It doesn't matter how low you think you are. The blood flows from the highest mountain to the lowest valley. The gospel that Paul preaches sets the prisoner free, calls the prodigal home, restores the exile. It always baffles me when people come to me and say, how are you reaching those epic guys? And I look at them the same way God reached you, with the gospel. When people say those people really need the gospel, what are you talking about? I thought everybody really needs the gospel, including you. Because here's the reality. The gospel breaks down this idea that we are better than someone because of our economic, racial, or location status. We all need the gospel because we all are in Adam and we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. This is why the church ought to be able to show racial harmony. This is why the church ought to be able to show a, a, a harmony between different economical statuses because of the gospel. You are better than no one. I know I just hurt your feelings, but you ain't better than nobody. Everybody needs the gospel. Not everybody, everybody. You know, when we say everybody, that's everybody. That's the far reaches of space. Everybody needs the gospel. You will go to hell just like everybody else without Jesus. That's where you're going. I don't care how many PhDs you got. I don't care how you clam up your status, everybody going back to the dust, and we all got to stand before Jesus Christ, and there is no righteousness within yourself, and if you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. You can't say, but I got my PhD. Come on. Can I put my uh, BMW up for collateral? No, you cannot. The gospel includes those without access to education or modern culture. The have and the have-nots and everyone in between. One of the main themes of Romans is the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for the religious Jews or for the pagan Gentiles, but it's for everyone. So Paul said he is under obligation 
If you look at the verse, he says, I am under obligation to who? To everyone. Well, what do you mean, Paul? What do you mean you are under obligation? As in Paul felt a debt of obligation to preach the gospel to everyone. He felt an obligation to preach the gospel to everyone. Which means we don't get to be selective in who we want to preach the gospel to. Sometimes we look at people and be like, ain't no way they ain't no way God gonna save them. I just don't see it happening. And I always say, if God can save me, he can save anybody else. Anybody know how much of a wretch you were that God reached into the dumpster and grabbed you out of it? You were waddling in your mess. And sometimes you need to think back because some of us got amnesia and we forget what we used to be, uh, used to waddle in. And sometimes we have to be reminded. But Paul says he is under obligation to preach the gospel. Now, I love what John Stott says. He makes the point that debt can be seen in two ways. If you take out a loan, you are obligated to pay it back. Right? Right? I know some of y'all, y'all take out loans and y'all out. Change y'all number, can't nobody find y'all. That probably wasn't a good analogy for some of y'all. We talking about debt. They called me, I said, you ain't heard about the crops? I was, forget that debt. That's eisegesis. Don't do that. So two ways to see debt here. If you take out a loan, you're obligated to pay it, get back. Another kind of debt is if I give you $1,000 to give to someone else, you are under obligation to dispense that $1,000 to those individuals. This is what Paul is talking about right here. That's how Paul means it. His ministry was a debt from Jesus. Jesus gave him the gospel, which is worth far more than any money you can have. Paul was obligated to share the gospel that Jesus had entrusted to him. If we view evangelism and sharing our faith this way, we will be much more evangelistic. Many of us see the gospel as maybe if I get an opportunity to do it. If what I really want to do gets done today, then maybe I'll... Talk about the gospel to some people. Maybe if I'm done with my Netflix and chill, maybe after I'm done with all my Facebook posts, maybe after I'm done with my job, then maybe I'll preach the gospel. Paul says we are under obligation to preach the gospel. And it baffles me. How can we have the only news that saves and we don't feel an obligation to preach it to people. How can I watch my coworker go to hell and I got the good news of Jesus Christ? You got to be one hateful person to do that. Paul says, I am under obligation to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not optional, church. This is not optional. Now, hold on. Because a lot of us would say, well, I'm willing to preach the gospel. I know that I'm obligated to do that. Let me ask you this. How willing are you to be inconvenienced? Hmm? Oh, this thing real. It's not just a gospel that's in the air, abstract and theoretical. No, it's not just hanging out there. 
The gospel came down and it walked with us. Jesus was inconvenienced. What are you willing to give up to preach the gospel? And what America has done to a lot of us is it has made us comfortable in our Christianity. And it has preached the gospel to us that is self-serving. And I came to tell you this morning that it is wicked. Jesus says that I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life for a ransom for many. Hold on, let me, I want to preach this thing really fast. Last week I said the gospel is a person, it's Jesus Christ. When I truly embrace the gospel, when I truly get it on a heart level, I begin to look like the person who the gospel is about which is Jesus Christ. When I have a relationship with him, I begin to reflect him. Let me go a little bit deeper. That went over your head. When you love something, when you're in love with something, when you admire something, when it shapes your life. For an example, let me go back to Michael Jordan. When all the kids love Michael Jordan, they were devoted to him. And the song came out, I want to be like Mike, and so all the kids had his headbands in his shoes because they were trying to reflect Michael Jordan. What I came to tell you this morning is that if you love the gospel, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you ought to start to look like him and walk like him and do what he does. Don't come to me telling me you love the gospel and there's no room for Jesus in your life. Don't tell me you love the gospel and you never celebrate it. Don't tell me you love the gospel and it's not doing nothing to your life because the Jesus that I serve, when he shows up, he shows up and he shows out and he transformed you. Let me use myself for an example. When I was an 18-year-old young man and I was out chasing girls and, and doing my own thing, Jesus showed up in my heart. I had to repent and go the other way and came to my girlfriend who is now my wife and said, I'm done with this life. I'm done with, with all this stuff that I've been chasing after. Why? Because the gospel showed up. And when the gospel showed up, my life was transformed form. And what did I now do? Pursue the salvation of other people. Which means sometimes there's late nights. Sometimes that means you got to leave your bed. You got to open up your home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to do that. Means you got to, when we look at your bank account, it ought to show that you love the gospel. Yeah, yeah. You just shouldn't just have a t-shirt on that say, I love Jesus. That's cute. That's nice. Good for you. But all week long, you ain't doing nothing on that shirt. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. The gospel shapes our thanksgiving. It shapes our prayer life. It shapes our longing. If you are not moved for people, I would truly impress upon your heart this morning to do an examination of your faith. The gospel shapes our longings and our obligations. So what does the thankfulness and prayers and longings of the apostle in this salutation tells us? That the gospel we have been called by and to is a gospel for all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There is not one person in this room or in this world that does not need the gospel. 
the Greek, the Jew, the Gentile, the barbarian, the educated, uneducated, upper class, lower class, ghetto, hood, uppity, degree, no degree, homeless, drug addict, prostitute, deadbeat, sinner. This gospel is for everybody. It is the good news to the entire world. And I would say it is the only news that is good. We all fit in one of these categories. And this is the theme hugely in the book of Romans. And next week, Paul would say it so powerfully. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The apostle Paul gave his life for this gospel, and so did guys like George Mueller. Their thanksgiving, their prayers, their longings are examples to us of what a godly man or woman who life is centered on the gospel thinks about, prays about, and cares about. What do you see in your heart this morning, church? The gospel ought to make you care about the salvation of people.